Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Are we all seated? I think we are. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. I'm Claire Malcolm, the Chief Executive of New Writing North, and it's a great pleasure to be here this evening to welcome the Gordon Byrne Trust, Faber and Faber, our shortlisted writers, and our lovely audience to this very special event. Um, I'm going to say a little bit about how the prize came into being, and then a few other people are going to speak and read for you this evening. And then we're going to award the first ever Gordon Byrne Prize. So this is a very special evening for our inaugural year of the award. The setting up of the Gordon Byrne Prize was a collaborative venture by Gordon's friends and family, his publisher Faber and Faber, and New Writing North. It was established after his death to keep his memory alive, to celebrate great writing like the writing he produced, and to honor, I suppose, and keep in mind the fact that he was from the Northeast and that he wrote increasingly a lot about the Northeast. It's a real pleasure for me and a real honor to be part of um, this award. When New Writing North were approached and asked if we would consider it, I thought it seemed like a really good idea. My own relationship with Gordon's writing dates back to, I think, 1991, when I bought a copy of his novel, Alma Cogan, in Waterstones in Leeds. I was in the final year of a fine art degree, and it was actually one of the first contemporary literary novels I ever bought, and it was fantastic. I remember reading Happy as Murderers, Happy Like Murderers, on the plane to Sydney, which was a really weird experience. Those of you that know that book, imagine what it was like to read that in one go, trapped on a plane. Um, and I then actually didn't meet Gordon until he came to Newcastle to launch um, the North of England Home Service, which is a novel that is set a lot in the Northeast and really about the Northeast, a really fantastic novel. And I know there are lots of great stories about that book, being the manuscript of it was left in a telephone booth apparently in Newcastle, the whole book was rewritten. So there's already mythology around a lot of this work. Um, so it's a real pleasure personally for me to be involved with this award, but also for New Writing North. I think it's important that we honour and remember the great writers from this region, and Gordon Byrne, for me, typifies and is one of the best of them. We had three judges for the awards this year, and unfortunately, for different complicated reasons, including living not in this country, um, none of them are here this evening. But the um, journalist Deborah Orr, who was a friend of Gordon's, the writer David Peace, who was also a friend of Gordon's, and Mark Lawson, the broadcaster, who you probably know from Radio 4's front row, um, judged the award. We, it's very interesting when you set up um, an award for the first time, because you have to kind of solicit entries, and you never quite know what you will get. And we got a huge amount of entries. And we also got asked a lot of questions about what the prize was about. And others rather than me will talk a little bit more about that and why we set it up in the way we did. Um, but we read a great deal of work. I think we had about 80 submissions in the end. And that was whittled down to a long list and then a short list um, that our judges then heatedly debated for quite a long time. So um, our winner this evening has really fought the battle to be the winner. I'll come back later to introduce um, the shortlisted writers. All of them are here, bar Richard Lloyd Perry, who unfortunately is in Tokyo. Um, he's the Asia reporter for The Times, so had to be abroad tonight, so couldn't be with us. He was very disappointed, though. Um, beside me is David Brewis from Field Music. To make this event really special, um, we commissioned Dave to create little interval pieces of music for each of the shortlisted books. 
So when the writers walk very slowly to the stage, it's not because they're being weird, it's because we want you to hear a little bit of the music, because it's quite a special thing that we've done. So that's what's going to happen this evening. I'm now going to hand over to Lee Brackstone, who was Gordon's editor at Faber and Faber. Please welcome Lee. Hello, everybody. Thanks for coming. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, Gordon's work and what it was like um, to work with a, with a genius, really. I was lucky enough to, um, to work with Gordon as his editor for a decade or so of his writing life up to uh, 2010. I was introduced to his work relatively late um, by the book, through the book that Claire has already mentioned, Happy Like Murderers, um, his nightmarish book on the West, which actually did give me nightmares, I remember at the time, actual nightmares. Um, but it was a book which somehow fearlessly and unflinchingly attempted to navigate the narrative of motive, cause and effect surrounding a case that traumatized Britain in the 90s. And Gordon's subject of choice was often trauma, spectacle, and dysfunction. As Guy Debord, a writer I'm sure Gordon both revered and admonished for his pretensions, said, all that was once directly lived has become mere representation. And this is an idea that runs through the body of Gordon's work. He was drawn to the dark side of celebrity or the celebration and anatomy of decadence. And his literature and impulse always represented to me an attempt to find comfort meaning and compassion in the most appalling or baffling of events. The disappearance of Madeleine McCann, the tragic loss of Duncan Edwards, the haunting spectre-like presence of Myra Hindley over the late 20th century, the primacy or the necessary-ness, as Gordon might himself put it, of his great friend Damien Hirst's art. All of this was connected in his mind, and so it should be. And so, he, and so he articulated what all of this suggested about the culture today and about us. Gordon was uniquely placed to make sympathetic, brave, and sometimes downright obscure and provocative parallels between the worlds of sport, art, literature, entertainment, and politics. Being with him was like mining at the cultural coalface with a toothpick. As a native Geordie, I hope he'd appreciate that metaphor though he'd also probably find it sentimental. The more I worked with Gordon and came to understand his vision, the more I came to realize he was working at the furthest imaginative frontiers of the literary world. Quite often, he was simply way ahead of me. I wish I'd had the chance to talk to him about Michael Jackson's death. He'd have anticipated the sad and perverse hysteria of the deification and made a kind of sense of it. I wish also I could have read him on the appalling realities of the Jimmy Savile abuses. And on a lighter note, he would no doubt already have digested the importance and perhaps flatulence of the literary story du jour, Morrissey's autobiography. These kind of public events obsessed, amused, and terrified Gordon. But he felt compelled to engage with them and transform them in a prose style that was uniquely his own. I don't really feel Gordon's London literary peers Ever, ever fully made sense of his genius. Neither do I feel he received the accolades his fiction, non-fiction prose, and work as an art critic deserved. So there's a certain irony that we are here today awarding a prize in his name. Born yesterday, 
his visionary novel, which documents the summer of 2007, when not only Madeleine, but Tony Blair disappeared, will endure perhaps as the best example of what Gordon aspired to do in his fiction. A total reinvention of genre, form, method, and composition. A book he proposed to me he would write in real time and which would document these times in the form of the news as a novel. I confess it took me about three weeks to fully understand this concept. It now, like much of what Gordon did, feels obvious after the event. Having worked as a journalist with a sharp eye for a story in the 70s, Gordon understood, questioned, and celebrated more than any of his peers the advent of 24-hour news on loop, the pornographic, compulsive intensity of it. Almost as a living and reflective literary version of that summer, Gordon attempted what was effectively the fictional version of an art installation. Increasingly, he was interested in collage, in the spaces in between events, Duncan Edwards dying, George Best killing himself, and people, Thatcher walking her dogs in Battersea Park, Tony Blair sliding off into well-renumerated retirements. Born Yesterday, to me, represented an experiment as, bra as brave as anything attempted by Ezra Pound, B.S. Johnson, or David Foster Wallace. More influenced by his beloved first-generation YBAs than any literary antecedent, the novel was rightly and intelligently praised. A part of me, not to be too burn aggrandizing, always felt it captured the essence of that year in the same way The Wasteland did, 1922. I know this is a big statement for a figure at favor to make, but Born Yesterday was a bravura, modernist moment, and as an art record of Blair's Annus Horribilis, it will remain compelling, vital, and ambiguous well into the coming decades. I remember Gordon as a man who made me laugh at the world, and often at myself, for my pretensions and shortcomings. I also remember him as someone who loved people, friendship, the good times, someone who was constantly intellectually restless and yet absolutely fulfilled at home in Chelsea, a Geordie in Chelsea, I ask you, with Carol, his wife, and his dog. A beautiful bag of contradictions. I remember a writer who acknowledged it was the world and events that shaped his art, not the other way around, and a man who saw through the bullshit to find ballast in, these moments, in those moments when we feel most lacking in gravity. We'll miss the books he won't write. He was one of the great literary innovators of these times. A writer, I think, as crucial to our understanding of ourselves as Don DeLillo is to American culture. He'd blanch at these comparisons, of course, but secretly love them. So it's a privilege to be associated with the Gordon Byrne Award on behalf of Faber and Faber, a prize which remembers and celebrates his legacy, which is in every way represented by the five excellent books on this year's shortlist. So now I'll hand back over to Claire. The 2013 shortlist for this award includes fiction and non-fiction, and books published by small, independent, and bigger publishers. Our five shortlisted authors hail from across the UK and from Tokyo, and their work, as you will hear tonight, covers a wide range of genres, styles, and writing, all of which the prize judges felt reflected something of Gordon's work. I'm going to introduce each of the authors before they read, so I'm not coming up and down and interrupting the flow of the evening. 
I'll introduce them in the order they will read. Anthony Cartwright is the author of the critically acclaimed novels The Afterglow and Heartland. He worked as an English teacher in East London for a number of years before becoming a writer. He is shortlisted for his novel How I Killed Margaret Thatcher. Gina Rafferty has worked as a journalist for over 25 years. She's the author of two non-fiction books on sport, The Cruel Game and Ladies of the Court with Virginia Wade. She's chair of Scottish Pen's Writers in Prison Committee. She is shortlisted for her novel, Myra Beyond Saddleworth. Duncan, ha Duncan Hamilton is the author of Provided You Don't Kiss Me, 20 Years with Brian Clough, which won the William Hill Sports Book of the Year Award in 2007. He won that award again in 2010 for a book on Harold Larwood. He is shortlisted for his sports book, The Footballer Who Could Fly. Benjamin Myers was born in Durham. His previous novel, Richard, was a Sunday Times Book of the Year, and Pig Iron was the runner-up in The Guardian's Not the Booker Prize. He won a Northern Writers Award earlier this year, and he is shortlisted for his novel, Pig Iron. And the author, as I said earlier, Richard Lloyd Parry, who isn't here this evening, um, I'll just tell you a little bit about him. He has reported from 21 countries and several wars, and his work has also appeared in the London Review of Books and the New York Times Magazine. He's the author of In the Time of Madness, and he was shortlisted for his true crime book, People Who Eat Darkness. So first up, please welcome Anthony Cartwright. Thank you. Um, as Claire said, this is uh, How I Killed Margaret Thatcher, my third novel. Um, like my previous two, it's set in Dudley in the Black Country. Um, I think what links the novels, as well as uh, being very firmly set in Dudley um, and, and using like, dialect in places and, and really trying to get across the sense of the place, is the impact um, of. of of the, of the early 80s, the 1980s, and, and, and the Thatcher government on, you know, my town, and I, I know obviously that's repeated, conscious of speaking in Durham, so I know, I know that's repeated across industrial towns, you know, across the across the country. So I really felt I wanted to write about the 80s directly. Um, it took me a while to work out how to do that. Uh, I started this novel with, with one voice, um, the central character, whose name is Sean Bull, and um, it's his voice as a child. So the, 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 the book starts in 1979 and goes through to 1984. He, he's nine when the book starts. Um, but I ended up with three voices, uh, which is Sean's as a child, Sean's as a 40-year-old, as a kind of, sort of now, looking back on those years, um, and how formative they've been for him, and how transformative for the town. Um, and I also ended up with the voice of Margaret Thatcher herself, um, which comes in between chapter changes. Uh, when I was writing it, I was conscious of, if anybody's seen the, the, the Steve McQueen film, Hunger, um, he uses Thatcher's voice like on the radio, on, on, on the telly, but you don't really see her, but it's kind of always there. Um, and that sort of, I had that in mind when I was writing the book. So um, we don't hear her in this section, though. Uh, I want to read uh, a, a, a short bit um, set during the World Snooker Final in 1980, 
which was also coincided with the Iranian hostage siege, both massive uh, television events. Um, so this is, this is Sean's voice. What you need to know, really, is that um, already the Thatcher government has had a massive impact on the family in that um, Sean's family has always been a Labour supporting family and then there's now cracks because it seems that some people have voted Tory. Um, the book starts with him falling out of a window like when there's a family rail going on, uh, which sort of starts things off. He mentions his uncle Johnny in this, who's um, uh, who's, a, who's a who's been a, who's been a student and um, uh, he's trying to start a revolution in some way, um, uh, which Sean sort of wants to happen. Um, I also make a reference to spiders. They've, they've moved, his family have moved to a new house and uh, all the building work has kind of created a plague of spiders, which he's sort of interested in. This is Sean. Margaret Thatcher starts shooting people during the World Snooker Final. We were all watching it at my nan and granddad's, Sunday afternoon going on Sunday night. Alex Higgins is our man. We love him. Everyone loves him. He plays fast, hits the balls hard. The other players stand and scratch their heads for ages and put chalk on the cues. Alex sniffs and jerks his head and knocks the balls around. Whenever I play snooker on the little table I got last Christmas, I try and hit the ball on the side like Alex Higgins and send it swerving down the table. All the other players hit the white ball in the middle but Alex hits it on the side and the balls thump into the pocket or creep in there gently and the white ball bounces and swerves off the cushions and Alex is ready for the next shot before the balls have even stopped moving. Come on, Alex, we say, when he gets a chance to win a frame. Even my nan, who loves him too. He hits shots in the match where we gasp all there in the front room, like the crowd at the crucible, like when he pots the pink, using the rest and knocks the black off the cushion and gets to 93. It feels good all of us sitting there together. Then, Margaret Thatcher starts shooting people. One minute, Alex is there trying not to lose his concentration, which he always does at some point. It's his Achilles heel. The next minute, there's a picture of men standing, crouching in the street with guns. Everyone talks at once, so I can't hear the television. Next to the men dressed in black with guns is another man in a gray suit rolling up a piece of carpet. It looks heavy. The men dressed in black point the guns at a row of white houses. The houses are big, with columns at the front and nice balconies. I imagine the kind of house my dad plans for us to live in one day. His dad's obsessed with moving at the start of the book. The man with the gray jacket carries the heavy carpet along the front of the houses. Another, another man helps carrying the back end. Something drops out the side of the carpet, and I see that it's an arm, a pale arm flopping around from inside the rolled-up carpet. I realise that the flopping arm belongs to someone who is dead. And although I saw my great-granny when she was dead, this is different on the telly, someone who's been shot, I think, if I died when I fell out the window, this is how my dad and granddad would have carried me. My mum says, oh, my God, Francis, and then everyone else realises what the arm is. Harry Robertson is outside the window, 
looking at half a car that is leaning against the curb, missing it all. I don't understand why he's not watching the snooker in the first place. Then, my granddad leans forward and swears and changes sides on the telly. And there's John Wayne in a film. And everyone shouts at my granddad and he turns the channel back again. There are men, soldiers, dressed in black, standing on the balconies of the beautiful houses. It's the SAS, my dad says. I can't tell from his face whether that's good or not. Whose side are we on? I whisper to Johnny, but he doesn't hear me. Then there's an explosion, a bang and a flash of fire and a big cloud of smoke, so you can't see the buildings anymore, and there's a cloud of smoke drifting down the street. We all call out when the explosions come, louder even than when Alex knocked the board off the table when he was trying a mad shot. I can see the shape of Harry Robertson standing, looking through the window at our television. The soldiers shoot. They fire the guns through the blasted windows. Then they all jump through into the buildings. Then there's nothing. Just the white buildings and the balconies and the reporter's voice talking. The soldiers in black are the SAS. My dad explains who they are to my mum. I don't know who they're shooting. Iranian gunmen, it says. Flames jump out one of the windows. Fire is coming from the broken windows. There's been a siege and hostages. I understand that bit. Hostages are when you keep someone prisoner. Six people are dead. It's a great success for the SAS. For Margaret Thatcher, the reporter says. At the crucible, Alex loses concentration completely and loses the final, 1816. If Johnny really wants a revolution, He'll have to fight the SAS, but he couldn't even fight the skinheads. Back at school, there's no football for a day while we all play SAS because everyone's so excited about it. We get into trouble for being too violent. No one's dead, though, I want to say. People love them, the SAS, except me. I can see them in Crow Street, climbing on the rooftops, creeping down the entries. That one in the suit, the ones with guns and balaclavas looming up outside the window of my nan and granddad's house, smashing the way inside, coming up out the trees at the back of our house. They're coming. I know it. No one else seems to think so. They are coming. If we try to get rid of Margaret Thatcher, like the police banging on the front door or the plague of spiders coming for their revenge, that's for sure. Thanks. I can't imagine anything more exciting than having um, music composed in honour of your book. Thank you. That's wonderful. Um, my book, um, Myra Beyond Saddleworth, I think is probably the only book on the shortlist that was inspired by a motorway. Um, I was um, 
driving up the M62, which I'd never been on, though I'd, never, I'd lived in Leeds for a while, um, and I was just so struck by it. Um, there's a turn-off for Saddleworth, and of course, somebody of my generation, the Moors murders were extremely powerful, um, and seeing that sign was so strange and spooky to me um, that I... Um, when I got to, to the friend I was staying with, I, I, I talked about it and uh, he said, well, um, do you think she's still alive? Um, and of course I didn't, but I thought, well, that is a great story, isn't it? So that was what set me off on um, writing this novel. Um, I'm very um, honoured to be on this shortlist, not just because the other books are, are so fantastic, but because I had huge difficulties in getting my book published, and I'm very grateful um, to Rod Glenn and Wild Wolf Publishing, who are a Northeast publisher, um, for taking it on. Um, otherwise, um, I think I would still be out there um, trying to get the book um, heard. Um, people seem to think that because you write a novel, because you, you fictionalise Myra Hindley, that um, you're some kind of supporter of her. And it, it, it's, it's so illogical um, that I, I, I was, I have to admit, I was quite surprised by it, um, that people, but I suppose I shouldn't have been because Mar Marcus Harvey's wonderful artwork um, of um, children's hands making up Myra Hindley's face um, was absolutely um, trashed by, by, by people. So um, I thought that we'd moved on a bit beyond that. It appears we didn't. Anyway, this... Um, chapter that I'm writing, um, that, that I'm going to read, um, is about um, a death, the death of a cat. Um, one of the things that uh, when you're dealing with such dark material, you have to have a bit of fun at some point. So this was my bit of fun with um, the idea of Myra Hindley and death and murder. It's called um, A Natural Death. The cat is stretched out on that old battered rug of Sophie's. How scrawny she looks. Her bones show through her scraggy fur and you can almost count the nubs on her spine. She's really gone downhill since last time, love, says Em. I know, she was at the wets all day yesterday. They had her on a trip overnight. The poor little chick. The little chick is um, Myra Hindley's girlfriend. She, um, during the course of the book, she has affairs with um, a rather upper-class young woman. And you'll have to forgive me, I'm a Glaswegian, I can't do upper-class um, accent. And um, I, ca I can't actually do Myra Hindley's accent either. She was from Manchester, but she had aspirations to be posh. So I have it in my head, but you'll have to forgive me if this all comes out Glaswegian. Um, the poor little chick looks pale, skinny. Oh, it's awful losing an animal. What would Em do without her dog, Minim? The little warm body to cuddle at night, the devoted eyes looking up at you. Sophie sits cross-legged on the floor. 
innately graceful as she strokes the sick cat. Em's really out of her league being with Sophie. She's so beautiful. The room is quiet, and the cat's wheezing breath sound very loud. Em is sure her own does too. As the afternoon darkens around them, Em finds herself drifting off, the faces of the dead floating at the back of her eyelids. Her friend Michael, sliding, sinking, deep beneath the water. If only she'd gone to the reservoir with them. But she wanted to sip tea in her new white frock, not go diving into murky water. And Puppet, oh, darling Puppet, killed by those mastering, murdering bastards, the police. They probably thought she'd break then, but she didn't. She was too strong for them. That hardened a heart against them that they'd use a poor, defenceless dog to get at her. She doesn't want to think about Puppet. She doesn't want to think about dying. Yet here's little Plum fading in front of her eyes. The poor thing looks very weak. No way she'll last the weekend. What will it be like? Will it be peaceful? Will she just slip away? If she does, it will be, M realizes, the first time she'll have seen a natural death. Plum teeters to her feet, legs buckling beneath her. She veers over to one side, head butting against the sofa. A little cry escapes Sophie. Has she been eating, asks them. She hasn't touched a thing today. What did the vet say? Sophie half sobs. He said it would be kinder to put her to sleep. Oh my God, Sophie, why didn't you? She'd been at the vets all night. I couldn't do that to her when she'd been in some strange place without me. It would have been too cruel, a terrible betrayal. But surely you wouldn't want to cause a little animal pain. No, no, of course not, but she, she's not in pain, is she? Em peers at the cat, stretched out now on Sophie's knee. She looks pretty peaceful, she admits. Sophie looks down at the animal on her lap. You think I'm wrong, don't you? No, of course not. She's your cat. It's up to you to say what happens to her. Is it? That seems a terrible responsibility to take on. Don't you think it's kinder to spare her suffering? Oh, she was in pain, I would. Of course, says Sophie. Maybe I'm more traditional than I thought. It seems a terrible arrogance to take another creature's life. She gets up to feed the fire with more logs, laying the cat carefully on the sofa. The animal's eyes follow her as she walks across the room. Plum was such a pretty creature when she was well, a dainty, high-stepping little thing who knew her own beauty. Now she watches Sophie, as if to impress every detail onto her mind's eye as if she wants to remember everything about her. Can it really be true that an animal loves so completely? Emma's frightened suddenly. There's been too much death in her life. She should just go home and get away from all this. And yet, there's a terrible fascination in it too. 
Sophie puts on the lamp beside Em. Her teeth start chattering. Oh, don't love, says Em, don't. Em leans her head back on the sofa. She's having trouble swallowing. It's as if she's filling up with water, as if she too is drowning, but in her own body. Sophie looks alarmed and comes over to sit beside her. Oh, it's all too much for you, my darling, isn't it? Shall I take you home? Em shakes her head. I don't want to be on my own, she whispers. You won't be. I'm here. There's a softness in her, a sweetness that Em has never experienced before. She's not neurotic or damaged like the women in prison. She's not rough in her love, the way they loved you in Gorton, the way Brady loved her. Maybe if they'd met early enough in their lives, maybe none of it would have happened. Maybe all Em needed was someone to be kind to her. As the night wears on, she drifts in and out of sleep. At around two in the morning, the animal starts to mew, a terrible sound that cuts through Em's dreams. She's heard that sound before, the sound of a creature in distress. She, she raises her head, her heart pounding. Where's Ian? She can't see Ian. Phlegm rises in her throat and she starts coughing. She feels as if her lungs will burst. Maria, Maria. Sophie's patting her back. I've made an awful mistake, haven't I, she says. Em stares at the little cat. She feels a strange excitement rising in her. The animal is so weak. She has very little time left now. Will she just roll over and die? Will she slip away quietly? It's too late to get the vet now, says Em. Oh, I know, says Sophie. The cat moans. I wouldn't have her suffer for anything. What can I do, Maria? I don't want her to be in pain. Oh, I don't think it'll be long now, says Em, not taking her eyes off the cat. You know, you just have to put that pillow over her face and she'd be gone. Sophie's pale. Oh, no, no, I couldn't. It would be kinder. Would you like me to do it for you? You could go outside. It would all be over in a few seconds. Sophie takes a deep breath and then shakes her head. Oh, it's kind of you, but I couldn't. I think I'll just let nature take its course. Em takes her hand and squeezes it. All right, love, she says. They sit in silence. Plum is breathing so quietly now that they strain to tell whether she's alive. Minum slides down off the sofa and lies by the fire in his own. Suddenly the cat's whole body convulses and she yells a weird banshee cry of unbearable pain. Sophie holds her against her chest. Oh, my little love. The cat's eyes stare sightless now. So this is what a natural death looks like. It's just as painful and violent as the others. Maybe she and Ian weren't as cruel as everyone said. Thank you.
Good evening. I shan't uh, make use of one of my uh, um, readings because I'm not very good at reading, but I will tell you about the actual book and why I kind of wrote it. And I wanted to begin by saying, and I was overjoyed when I was short-listed uh, for this prize because Gordon was the kind of writer that I want to uh, be. I don't think I'll ever, I mean, I don't think I'll ever get close to him. But when I read his books, there was so much in, in their intelligence there. And everybody will talk about all the usual books, um, all the great novels and the book about Sutcliffe, etc. Uh, but I always think about his best and Edward's uh, book first. I've been thinking about that over the past couple of years simply because I've just written the book on George Best myself. And I went back to read Gordon's work and I thought, goodness, this is a very, very good book. And I think that, I always think it takes probably about 20 years um, for somebody to be recognised as a, a classic, um, a, 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 to have actually produced a kind of classic book, unless, of course, you happen to have sung for the Smiths, um, in which you can get it in a week. Um, but I think, I think that in another 20 years, and that's the thing about writing, you've kind of got to live to about 140 to be able to know how good you actually were. Um, I think that will be one of, one of the very top sports uh, titles. Um, and he wrote another fantastic sports book, um, which, if you've, uh, uh, which I would kind of recommend everybody to read on snooker, which is a book that nobody, uh, uh, sorry, which is a kind of sport which, which um, has very little literature, really. Um, and uh, I said, when I, when I kind of went through his best and Edwards book, and Duncan Edwards is actually in this book, uh, because I was uh, sort of named because I, well, I was born in 1958, which was the same year as the Munich air crash. And uh, the Munich air crash was February. I was born 10 months later. And um, had Duncan Edwards not died, I would be called Jim, which would be my father's name. Which is, what he, which is what he wanted to call me because his father was called Jim. The Footballer Who Could Fly really isn't a sports book, I suppose. It has a lot of sport in it. It has a lot of football in it, obviously, and you can tell by the title. But essentially, it's a social history. There's a fabulous conceit if you start to write about yourself. You're always asked if people know that you write books, what you're writing about now. And if you say to them, well, you're writing about yourself, they kind of go, oh, goodness, you know, that must be very boring. Um, and it's a conceit because how can your life be any more fascinating than anybody else's? And why should it be? And when I started it, it was fundamentally to try and get closer to my father. Because my father, I should tell you a little bit of background about my father. He was born in 1922. And I always think about that generation. They didn't talk about their feelings. They didn't talk about the hardships that they'd, that they'd kind of gone through. They just, they just kind of got on with their life. So he went through the 20s. He went through the hardships of the 20s, the kind of devil's decade of the 40s, the war, the austerity of the kind of 50s. And then, rather like any other man of his age and his kind of generation, the 1960s were a bit like a, a puzzle that he couldn't solve. Um, I've just uh, said, I've just been writing about George uh, Best. And um, everybody says to me, how could Manchester United have made things different for George Best? And what could Matt uh, Busby, who was then Manchester United's manager, have done? And I always say that, Manchester, that um, um, Matt uh, Busby was born in 1910. 
he, he found the 1960s an absolute mystery. He couldn't understand the changes in fame, he couldn't understand the changes in clothes, he couldn't understand the changes in music, he couldn't understand anything about the 60s, which he thought would be a passing fad and it would just go on. And I have to say that my father was exactly like that. He was a coal miner. He was from Newcastle, or, or sorry, he was, uh, he was born in Scotland. And then his father had to move to Newcastle because the pit in Scotland closed. And then later on, because my father's pit closed in, um, um, closed in Newcastle, we then moved to Nottingham for a pit that they said, rather like Hitler's Third, Third Reich, would actually last for a, a thousand years. And I can tell you that if you go past the place where his pit was, you wouldn't believe that any pit had ever been there. It's uh, kind of like these sort of Teletubbies scenery where all the sculptured stuff, it's absolutely unblemished now. There's no sign that there was once a pit there. And he had to work hard. I mean, he worked tremendously hard. And because he was from the generation that he was and because of the man that he was, we didn't really have very much in common. He couldn't understand why I, why I wanted to read kind of books and I had a room full of books. And um, he couldn't understand, I suppose, really, why I wanted to be a, a, a journalist, and specifically, I suppose he couldn't understand why I wanted to be a sports journalist, because he said to me, what's the big advantage of being a sports journalist? I said, well, you just get into things free. It's fantastic. You don't have to pay. And you get a little bit of fame by association because you're able to meet all the people that, that, um, that um, you kind of worship. And the one thing that held us to, to uh, together was football. That was the one thing. And I say in the book that without football, we were strangers under a shared roof. But with football, we were actually father and, uh, father and son. And we went to matches. And one of the big days for us of the entire year, I say it was like Christmas, it, it was like Christmas Day in uh, um, spring, really, was the day of the FA Cup final. Nowadays... Of course. Well, if I weren't here, I'd be sitting at home watching West Ham play kind of Man City on their um, Sky Sports 2. Um, but back in the 60s and back in the 70s, football was very rarely screened. It certainly wasn't screened live. Um, and so the FA Cup final was our Christmas day. And we would sit down and we would... And they used to start coverage then about 9.30 in the morning. And we used to sit there all day watching all the pointless build-up and we'd go and buy the newspapers and, we would, and, and, and uh, then we would sit and watch match of, match of the day later on just to make sure that the kind of result was as we thought it had been. Then we'd buy the Sunday papers. And it was our weekend, really. And I got my uh, appreciation, I suppose, of him entirely through football because, he, as I said, he was the sort of person who was never going to go over a board and, board and use um, and say that he actually loved uh, me or, or, or uh, that uh, he kind of hoped I would do well. He just, he, he, he kind of took that for kind of red, really. And um, it was a very difficult book to write in one sense. It was a very simple book to write in another because I did it in 12 weeks. And uh, if you write 90,000 words in 12, uh, 12 weeks, you're going to be very tired by the, by, uh, the end of it, I can uh, tell you. Um, but what I was searching for was, I was searching for him, really. 
I was trying to find him. But it's still a very difficult book because what I do when I look back on it, and I'm not one for going back and looking at looking at my books once they've been published, because I can always find a sentence, a paragraph, a page, or an entire chapter that I should have written better, differently. But it's still very difficult to, um, to kind of go back to this book, simply because it just reminds me of some wasted years, really, and of things that were left unsaid. Um, my father had been dead for... 13 years when I started it and 14 years when it was published and I always and people ask me the obvious question what would he think about it and I don't think he would have said anything I think he'd have been quite uh, proud so I'm just going to end by saying one thing because I, 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 I do kind of go on about this now is that if you've not spoken to your parents recently and if they're still with us when you go home to a rare night just give him a call, because I would love to speak to him now. Thank you very much. keep this quite short because I don't do too many readings I'm sort of working at a rate of about one every 37 years at the moment um, I always feel awkward reading from my own books as well just because it's such a personal personal thing um, it's like opening up your, your diaries or opening up your soul or something um, so I'll say a little bit about the book uh, Pig Iron which is this novel here is set in Durham. Um, it felt really strange arriving back in Durham today. I live in Yorkshire and lived in London for years, and um, the Gordon Byrne Trust have very kindly put myself and Adele up in Durham Castle in the Bishop's Suite, which is the bedroom's about the size of this room, <laughs> and a lot posher, actually. <laughs> and I, I, I had a bit of an emotional moment because... I sort of realised that I was back in Durham, staying in Durham Castle, which I've never been in because they don't let local scumbags in. It's only for the posh students. And I, I sort of opened up the window and was able to lean out and I could see the, the Angel pub, which is... Some of you will know the Angel. It was the, the place to buy drugs. It was the place to drink. And I just... I don't know, I felt a little bit overwhelmed to be back in Durham due to writing rather than just to see my family who are here tonight. Um, so a little bit about the book. Um, it was written not in Durham, it was written while I was living in uh, Hebden Bridge in West Yorkshire. Um, but it's set in Durham and it's about a young traveller called John John, John John Wisdom. Um, he's a gypsy and he's just been released from prison. Um, as the reader, we don't know what the crime is that he has committed, but we do know that he's trying to escape quite a, a legacy of violence which has been created by his father, who's called Mac Wisdom, who was a bare-knuckle boxer. And in writing the book, I kind of did a lot of research, reading about traveller lifestyle, traveller communities, but also I incorporated a lot of stories which um, I heard first or second-hand growing up around here, 
um, which, again, it makes it strange being in the town hall. I've never been here, but some of the novel is set 20 yards away outside. I've been beaten up about 100 yards that way. Um, had my nose broken the, the, other, the other direction. Um, so I kind of put all of this into the novel. Um, and it's really it's a book about a sense of place and also rootlessness of the main character who is a traveler. But the, the kind of irony of the book is that he's never actually traveled. He's, he's been stuck in Durham, which um, there's worse places to be stuck, but the predicament that he finds him in is not a pleasant one. Um, and he, he finds escape through nature, really, through the, the natural world and trees and woodlands. Um, so I, I read a lot of nature books while writing this, because some of you aren't from Durham. You know, it's a city, but five minutes in any direction, you can be out in the countryside. And it's, it is a nice place to grow up. And that was one of my, one of my worries about the book was that I was portraying Durham, the place that I'm from, in a, in a negative light because it is a very violent book. There's a lot of blood and guts. Um, someone gets a testicle pulled off at one point during a fight. Um, it's quite graphic, I guess. Um, it's a book about alienation and escape. Um, it's about family name and family bonds that everyone has, but particularly... It, those people who grew up in the traveller community. Um, so John John, the lead character, is kind of cursed with the, the family name, and he's cursed with this reputation. His father was a big, hard, brawling fighter, whereas he is a kind of more philosophical, younger, more peace-loving guy, I guess. Um, on, a, on a sort of wider perspective, it's about post-industrialization. A lot of the reviews that the book got uh, mentioned Margaret Thatcher, which is why it's interesting to hear Anthony speak tonight. Margaret Thatcher wasn't really in my mind when I wrote the book, but I think maybe growing up here as a child in the 80s and into the 90s, you're kind of aware of her presence and you're aware of how her influence changed the landscape, changed the economy, and kind of after she went, the Northeast was changed forever, really, and I guess. It's, this isn't a political book, but it is there in terms of maybe some of the backdrops and some of the scenes uh, of what happens when industries die and people are left sort of floundering. In John John's case, he becomes an ice cream man. So it's about ice cream vans, it's about fairgrounds, it's about housing estates, woodlands. Uh, but most of all, it's about Durham, um, which is why it's, it's great to be here. And just to, I'll just say something very quickly about Gordon Byrne. Um, his writing was a huge influence on me. Um, I first I heard of him before I read him when uh, my sister Catherine, who's here tonight, said that there's a writer from the Northeast called Gordon Byrne, and I was aware of Alma Cogan, a book which I read years ago and have recently reread and was kind of even more blown away by it. But about 12 years ago, I was staying at uh, my sister's house in Gosforth and I was working on a book. I was staying in her attic room and she said, oh, you should read this. It's by that guy, Gordon Byrne, and it was Happy Like Murderers. And it just completely blew my head apart. It was by far the darkest, most disturbing thing I've ever read, but it was also probably the most brilliant piece of literature I've ever read. And it changed my entire outlook as to how you can approach fiction 
Um, I work as a journalist, mainly writing about music and the arts, but seeing another journalist and someone from the Northeast kind of um, take the novel in exciting new directions was really inspiring to me. And, you know, I was really honoured to be shortlisted for this prize. And then I saw the other titles on, on the shortlist. And I hope some of you would agree that it's by far a more exciting and interesting list than most of the other major literary prizes. The Booker Prize happened this week, and it's not, it's not a competition between competitions, <laughs> but I know I would go out and buy and, and, and have a, a, all the other shortlisted books, and I think any one of them deserves to win. Um, as you've seen from the authors who've spoken tonight, they've all, they've all got their own merits. Um, I'm not going to read from Pig Iron, but um, because Catherine, my sister, introduced me to Gordon Byrne's work, and because part of the book is narrated by a female character, John John's mother, Fancy, who is of a similar age to Catherine, I thought rather than try and be a female narrator, Catherine has very kindly offered to come up and read a very short section. It's just about a page which gives you a little glimpse into the book, and I uh, hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Two kids mewling, the new trailer seemed to shrink in size, and Mac did begin to get the itching. It was only last summer that him and Barker had toured the country, but all that freedom seemed a long time ago. Now he's a young father to two, and he had that violence burning in his belly. Drink dampened the flames for a while, but then it came back hotter, and sometimes even a good scrap wasn't enough to douse the fire. Even after he and Eddie or he and Simon Samways and Jim Brazil, or any of the local traveller lads, or sometimes even just Mac by himself had clumps and bounces, or who ever happened to get in their way down the snooker hall or outside a pub, or at the taxi rank, the bus station, the marketplace. Even after he'd broken chairs and tables and noses and jaws, he would make his way back to the site where he'd find a reason, any little reason, to start a fight with me over some daft thing, some at small, like his tea not being ready, even though it had gone cold hours ago, or the smell of the shite in the Ben's nappies, or the weather, any little thing. And then, and then he'd become too big for the van. His eyes would go first. They'd just turn black like clouds had crossed them, and he'd start bellowing and throwing things and smashing things and punching things, things like plates and pictures and me, his wife. Fists in me mouth and stomach, the bairns crying. Me on the floor being kicked and stamped into the corner. The van rocking. But you didn't have to go and make a spleen over it. You took it. It was part and parcel of marriage. And when that still weren't enough, he'd take off looking for it again to anywhere that there were gobshites and braggarts who he could put on their asses just for looking at him funny. Soon, he was barred from all of the pubs around town, so he had to widen his circle. He began to spend time around the villages outside of the city, the funny little places, pit villages, backward places, some said, one road in, one road out places, places like Wheatley Hill and Wingate. Not more than hamlets, some of them, clusters of houses and a couple of barns, a pub and a church, perhaps, or the foundations of a new housing estate marked out in the fields with chalk, like corpse outlines. 
and then further afield too, widening the circle further around the city to take in Fishburne and Trimden, places you'd need a magnifying glass to find on the map, and out, toward the, uh, out towards the coast as well, end of the world places, places perched over the North Sea, working places, dirty places, roughhouse places, places unchanged, places he'd fit right into. Thank you. that was my theme tune but I don't think it was. Now on to the very exciting part of the evening where we make the announcement. Thank you to all the shortlisted authors to, for reading. Um, the prize that the winner gets is a cheque for £5,000 and this beautiful award that has been made especially for tonight um, and a chance to undertake a sustained writing period at Gordon Burns Cottage in the Borders. So it's an absolutely fantastic prize to win. To tell us who has won, I'm delighted to introduce Carol Gorner and Martin Westwood from the Gordon Burns Trust. Please welcome them. Or shall I announce it? Well, I'm going to announce the winner uh, is Pig Iron by Ben Myers. <laughs> um, hi, so uh, Deborah Orr couldn't be here tonight, but uh, I've got a statement to read by her. Um, in Pig Iron, Benjamin Meyer's most recent novel, I think we have alighted on a work that captures the spirit of the Gordon, Bird, the Gordon Byrne Prize perfectly, which is good. This being the inaugural award, it was very important for us to start as we mean to go on. The novel is about a young man from the travelling community, John John. He is struggling to escape the abusive legacy of his bare-knuckle fighter father. He is trying to make a settled life for himself on the edge of a northern town, when all he has ever known is the hardest of rural lives as a gypsy, that and prison. He still loves the countryside, his special spot, the spot he loves most, he calls his green cathedral. I think Gordon would have liked this book very much, as does his widow, Carol Gorner. But oddly enough, I don't think he would actually have been interested in writing this book or one like it. While that may seem paradoxical, that's good too. Other judges' favourites, as you know from the shortlist, included books that were much more similar in theme to some of Gordon's serial killing or sport, say, or serial killing as sport. But Pig Iron had its own subject and treated it in the way that Gordon always treated his, by exploring it in a comprehensive context, social, political, cultural, economic, psychological, sexual, Often, the real or fictional characters in Gordon's books had come to towns and cities, or left them. Gordon wrote a lot about people existing in the interstices, finding themselves unable to make the transition from one type of life to another, or making the transition by relying on perversity and brutality. 
It's that purposeful engagement with the difficulties of leaving a rural life for a town life, each with their own different brutalities, that makes Pig Iron Burnsian. Pig Iron is an important book because it tells a story that shaped all contemporary Western humans, but is routinely, inexplicably overlooked. The great move from agriculture, agricultural life to industrial life. The respects in which that shapes human culture and individual humans was something Gordon was always thrummingly alive to. And of course, Pig Iron is beautifully written, but that's the least of the things that the work of Benjamin Myers has in common with the work of Gordon Byrne. Um, thanks. Two, two appearances in 37 years. I've kind of been really nervous all week about tonight just because, as I said, the, the shortlist is so strong. And it, and, but kind of more than that is the fact that it's, it's a Gordon Byrne Prize and it's the first ever year of it. And is, as I said before, I don't want to repeat, repeat myself too much, but his writing's been such an influence that I'm completely honoured and flattered to win this. Um, when I wrote the book, it, it would be a lie to say that it, the book was, was turned down by lots of publishers. It wasn't even read by lots of publishers. It, it was sent out to lots of publishers, and almost all of them, except two, I think, in Britain, there's only two got back to me about the book. One of them turned it down, which is fair enough, and the other one was Blue Moose Books, who... Um, are based in Hebden Bridge, and they're run by Kevin Duffy and Heather Duffy, who are here tonight. And um, they took the book on straight away without hesitation, and I was completely um, sort of staggered and flattered. They're, they're a small publishing company who remortgaged their house to finance Blue Moose Books, and um, they've been going a few years, and the company's growing with each book. One of their recent titles has just been sold as 20th Century Fox and is in development for a TV series and a film. Um, some of the other books are getting nominated for awards. Um, and so really I'd like to thank Blue Moose Books, Kevin and Heather, um, who show that companies don't have to be big, they don't have to have huge marketing budgets, they just have to be tenacious and passionate about books. Um, and I know for a fact that without them, Pig Iron would have died on my hard drive about three years ago. Um, so I'd like to thank them. I'd also like to thank my family who are here tonight and have had to put up, up with me getting increasingly anxious all week at the fact that I might have to speak. And also to Adele, who's here tonight, and um, to everyone at the Gordon Byrne Trust and Faber and to Claire at New Writing North. So thank you. And now we can all drink. Yeah.